Hey guys, welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf, the founder of the Macro Compass, and as always with me, my friend. Andreas Steno, uh, with you live from the Fullerton Hotel in Singapore today. Um, Alf, we have some news to share. <laughs> yes. So, guys, uh, starting in two weeks from today, so the show that will be published on the 7th of May, the Macro Trading Floor will be transitioned from today's Blockworks channel to our own YouTube channel. And you can find the link to go and subscribe just here. Yeah. So if you're a listener every Sunday or every Monday, wherever you listen to us and you want to keep listening to us on YouTube with some surprises we're going to bring on our new channel, go and subscribe there or you're not going to be able to see the show again. Yeah. And if you are a podcast listener... You don't need to do anything at all. It will arrive in the same app as every Sunday. Wow, quite some news, Andreas. Yeah. But okay, apart from that, um, let's talk a bit about Asia. I mean, you're in Singapore, man. I mean, I don't envy you. You probably flew for a bazillion hours. You're completely <laughs> jet-lagged. So please excuse Andreas in case he says something that doesn't make any sense. But let's try to make some sense. Because your clients in Asia they are relatively closer to China than we are. Yep. And we have had quite some data recently that seems to suggest this reopening is happening, Andreas. So what's going on? What's the perspective that people have in Asia about China? So, I mean, first of all, we, we obviously had the GDP report from the first quarter out of uh, China earlier this week. Um, it's surprised on the upside. Uh, quite a substantial spillover to some of the industrial metals uh, that has otherwise that have, that have otherwise suffered right uh, palladium nickel stuff like that had like three yeah. four sigma moves in just a day um, so it was a surprise apparently to markets uh, this GDP report uh, I I'm, I wouldn't say that people out here are surprised that China uh, is actually open and that the Chinese like consumption is is coming back. Um, it, it seems like an overwhelming consensus story uh, when I talk to uh, asset allocators out here. But what strikes me is that even in Singapore, um, macro hedge funds, they don't really like an exposure to mainland China. Uh, out of the political risk and considerations around what happened to, for example, Russian stocks, uh, due to the geopolitical turmoil with Russia. Uh, so they, they have implemented various proxy traits of this China uh, reopening. Um, first of all, they like to belong stocks from Macau, the casino island. Um, that, that's something I've heard several times today. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, to be honest, uh, before this. Uh, but I looked the chart up and it, um, it's been going to the moon lately. So uh, apparently you see this China positivity around a few places in, in financial markets. And then obviously they also consider parts of the commodity space uh, decent China proxies, uh, but they've had to implement these trades via proxies. And that's why you see sort of an underwhelming move in Chinese equities, even though the positivity is there around the case. Uh, a lot of people prevent themselves from taking direct risks in China. Uh, and when I discussed this with uh, asset allocators in the US, they were like, no, 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 hold off. We cannot, we cannot do that. We cannot even touch it. Um, so, I mean, the consensus is there. It's just tricky to trade it. I think that's yeah. um, kind of where we stand right now. Fair point. Mm -hmm. One thing about the uh, several economic indicators update we got in March, I mean, 
apart from GDP growth, I think if you look under the hood, one of the discussions I've had with my clients is, yeah, but this Chinese reopening and the growth in data is only appearing into state-owned sectors, state-owned enterprises, where China can control the flow of credit, right? So it's the property sector, which is rebounding a bit because China has decided that it's enough as a deleveraging. So they're trying to channel a bit of credit there. But look at the consumers, Alf. That was the average feedback. I mean, I don't see consumption picking up. And the March retail sales data were really strong. Okay, there is a base effect with 2022, right? Obviously. But still, even if you take that base effect out, retail sales were really, really strong. And it's only one print, but it might suggest that the optimism is spreading a bit towards consumers. And, you know, China is one of the places that has one of, I think, I think 30% of, uh, it's what consumption accounts for as overall economic activity in China. It's very low. Like the same number in the US would be over 70%. But nevertheless, it's a signal, I think, Andreas, that if the Chinese consumer as well feels a bit better from a balance sheet perspective, then this could help this reopening trend be more sustainable than just a blip like we saw um, in January, also from a market interpretation point of view. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. And I mean, when you see an inflow of Chinese people at the casinos at Macau, it can mean either two things. Either you're deeply underwater and trying to bet yourself back in in the money, or else you have a lot of money, right? And I think the latter is the case. Um, uh, Look, Andreas, we have received some feedback. We do this mm -hmm. podcast every Sunday. I have an Italian accent. You have a Danish accent, and we never end up talking about Europe at length. No. I mean, we always talk about the US and the Fed and China, and of course we talk about Europe as well, but shall we go a little bit deeper into that? Just for yeah. once. Yeah. After all, it is what I spent the most time on watching, to be honest, um, given that we have a research house that sort of aims at being a European uh, powerhouse, right? Uh, and it is, of course, also something that is relevant for most discussions uh, with, with clients. And I actually find it pretty interesting that right now there's a bit of positivity around Europe for the first time in quite a while when I discuss um, the, the topic with asset allocators in, in US and Asia as well. I mean, just before the pandemic and even through parts of the pandemic, I always got that feedback. Oh, it's just an open air museum and it's not worthwhile investing in it and stuff like that. But there's a bit of positivity back, uh, obviously driven by the price narrative, I suppose, uh, given that European stocks have done pretty well since October, uh, even outperformed many peers uh, globally. Uh, so I think it's an interesting outset for a discussion on Europe and whether we can sort of remain in this positive spirit. Uh, I have my doubts around that, but I think we should start with one really interesting topic, given what has happened this week, and that is inflation in Europe. Uh, we had an absolute stinker of an inflation report out of the UK, uh, mainly driven, uh, as I see it when I decompose the data, by another spike in food prices, yeah. um, which which looks a bit odd to me given that traded food prices are down a lot. Uh, but we saw the same thing happening in France uh, through February and March, so lacked effects from extreme price hikes uh, in traded food prices uh, into last year. Uh, so there's a, probably a bit of a, of a lack effect ongoing here in food prices in Europe, which is interesting to follow uh, because it, it has been a big part of, of the surprises to, to inflation in, in recent quarters, this, this move in food prices. Uh, so 
what do you make of, of European inflation first year, Alf? Um, is it stickier than what we see in, in the US and elsewhere? Okay, two statistics. The first is over 80% of the European CPI basket is running at annualized inflation rate of over 3%. Mm. 80% of the basket is over 3%. Really hard at this point to make the case that it's energy-driven, supply-driven, it's Russia, it's food. 80% of the basket, it's running above 3%. So it's pretty broad, I would say, from that perspective. But is that just a reflection? a reflection of a typical late-stage inflationary cycle. I mean, at the beginning, it might be food, it might be energy, it might be anything else, right? But if the economy is in an expansion cycle, like the European economy was, and very strongly so in 2021 and the first half of 2022, what you normally get after that is a good hiring spree. It's a tighter job market, it's higher wages. And even in Europe, we have seen some signs of wages being at annualized levels around 4%, right? When you get wages in and when you are later in the macro cycle, it is not a surprise, I think, to have inflation being a bit broader and a bit stickier. Now, today, Schnabel, which is a prominent member of the governing council, put out an excellent set of charts, I would say, on Europe overall. And she also plotted um, several measures of sticky inflation in, in Europe. So there is a trimmed mean I mean, all that means there is that the ECB is trying to trim away the most volatile component of inflation and only focus on, let's say, the stuff that is the more core, the more sticky part. There is super core inflation. All these measures, let's say, of, of really core and non-volatile inflation components are running at annualized levels still around 5%, Andreas, wherever, however you break it. So it is broad, it is sticky, it is there. But I'm not particularly surprised, to be honest, because Europe is at a stage of a macro cycle, which is still a bit earlier than where the US is, just because of the nature of the fiscal stimulus in Europe, as we have discussed multiple times, the nature of the labor market is just different than the US. So it is, it is sticky and it is broad at this stage. Will it persist so for a year to come? There, I don't think so. Is it already priced? Yes. Inflation swaps in Europe are pricing inflation to drop from 7% today, 20th of April, 7% year-on-year headline inflation to 3% by October. Yeah. That is really quick as a drop. So it is also partially priced in, I would say. Yeah. And is that a feasible scenario? We will get close to it, if you ask me. Um, so let me reveal my favorite inflation indicator in the eurozone and then i will reveal whether it will tell you to expect inflation will be higher or lower than three percent by october after that so the european commission um, does a survey among uh, mostly service companies but also manufacturing companies um, in the eurozone in each country uh, obviously on a weighted perspective and um, it's called the eurozone selling price expectations survey by the european commission and currently uh, the latest print um, Roughly 18% on a net basis expect to hike prices over the coming period, so the next one or two quarters. Uh, and that is down from more than 60% on a net basis just a couple of quarters ago. Uh, on usual correlations, that will take inflation to 35 to 4% by year end. Yeah. So slightly above what is priced by uh, the inflation swaps. We need to remember that a net 
survey print of plus 18% expecting to hike prices is roughly where this price survey <laughs> tended to peak <laughs> in, in former cycles. So it, it's, it's not a home run yet um, for, yeah. uh, for the European Central Bank, but at least it's pointing down um, relative to a couple of quarters ago. So when um, Trichet uh, famously hiked interest rates in 2011, 2012, this survey peaked at roughly 20. Um, so it is highly unusual that we see these price trends in, in the Eurozone. I have to admit that. It is even so that this price survey from time to time prints below zero. So on aggregate, companies expect to see declining consumer prices. Um, I can tell you that the similar survey in the US basically never prints below zero. Um, so it is quite historic, I'd say, that even with this downturn economically that we've seen um, from a growth perspective in recent quarters, we still print at relatively elevated levels for, for Eurozone inflation expectations in, in surveys like this. So 35 to 4%, that's, that's essentially what we can promise by now, in my opinion, mm. which, which is not a home run. Now, which actually begs the next question, because you talk about Europe and you say, okay, so the macro growth cycle is a bit, not that mature as it is in the US, so you might expect growth to be kind of anemic, but not recessionary yet, let's say, in Europe. And then you're looking at inflation slowing down to, let's say, 3.5% by year-end. So where is the ECB then? What does that mean for European assets, for the euro, for rates, for credit spreads, for the ECB? Mm -hmm. So let's first start, I think, from the ECB itself. So... The ECB is priced to keep terminal rates at 4% to reach these levels by late summer, let's say, and then to stay yeah. there, Andreas, until December. I find that a relatively credible market neutral expectation, you know, without further recessionary information or an, an expecting inflation to slow down to 3.5-4%, then I think the ECB keeping rates at 4% for a prolonged period of time makes sense as the base case pricing. After that, the fund starts because in 2024, the market expects 100 basis point of cuts, roughly. And after that, the market expects ECB rates to basically plateau at 3%. Now, that I find the most fascinating part of market expected rates in Europe. I mean, as a reminder, for the last eight years, the average ECB deposit rate was negative or zero. And now we're talking about a more persistent medium-term expectation of ECB rates at 3%. That is a big, big change. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, what do you make of the ECB reaction function short-term, first of all? And then what do you make of this 3% expectation built in forwards two years, three years, four years, five years from now? So first of all, when it comes to the ECB reaction function... Um, I consider it lacked relative to the Federal Reserve reaction function. I think that's safe to say. Uh, they were late to the hiking party. They will be late to the cutting party as well. And if you look at uh, the reaction function relative to inflation, um, what I consider necessary for them to conclude that they have reached some sort of peak territory for inflation is that we also see this disinflationary trend confirmed in core inflation. Yeah. So currently we have a clear disinflationary trend in headline, but 
obviously driven by extreme base effects in in um, in energy, not least given that we measure it exactly against the invasion months now. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's very hard to see anything but like a slow deceleration of the annual pace in, in the core inflation. So that's obviously needed. I think we will get that, but it will probably take until September, October for, for that really to feed through uh, in, in a convincing way. Uh, so it, it, it essentially means that they still have a window of opportunity ahead of them uh, from, from a hiking perspective, I think. Uh, I think it's very likely that they will reach peak in September. Um, it's also s- somewhat what we've been guided uh, towards by, by yeah. uh, some of the centrists of the board. Uh, I, I, I typically listen a lot to um, uh, Villois, uh, so the French governor. Um, he, he has been very vocal that um, they are closing in on peak territory and that they would like to be at peak at the latest by September. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very strong promise, uh, also given that he's so concrete on timing. Um, but what I don't f- find likely is that we will plateau at 3% once this dust settles. Um, so what could speak in favor of like a higher neutral rate <laughs> in, in Europe? Labor force dynamics. Okay. I don't see anywhere near the same labor force dynamics as I see in the US. Um, first of all, this whole retirement um, wave that we've seen in the US, it's not been as clear in Europe, uh, if, if at all present in data. Uh, the whole work from remote trend um, is not as clear in Europe as it is in the US. Uh, also something with relevance for the commercial real estate sector, by the way. Uh, and therefore, I'm kind of stuck with the conclusion that the market expects Europe to pay excess prices for energy for a prolonged period. That is the only way this pricing makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. And that that is, of course, I guess, a feasible scenario. Uh, but we will, of course, have extreme volatility around some sort of central scenario on energy, as we've already seen over the past couple of years here. Um, and from a momentum perspective, it doesn't really seem like that will be the driver of things for the next tech, uh, for the next few quarters here. So ultimately, is is a neutral real rate of say one percent? Is that is that something sustainable in Europe? No, Europe needs a negative real rate more than the U.S. does. Yeah, my I agree on that. Well, the only sustainable shift I could see that makes this really a higher real equilibrium interest rate is if we shift more sustainably towards the dominance of capital to the dominance of labor. Mm. So if you want to onshore back uh, all the car factories and all the manufacturer jobs that you have offshored from Europe to Eastern Europe or to Eastern Asia or to anywhere you have and you want to onshore them all back, well, then you're going to have some scarcity of labor problem, even without the early retirement, Andreas. It's just yes, yes. the demand, the labor demand would fast outpace the labor supply. So that brings back wage bargaining power and it brings back labor over capital, which has been one of the reasons why R star and equilibrium real interest rates have also dropped recently. Mm-hmm. Honestly, though, if you listen to the CEOs, I mean, when you are at peak fear of supply chain, 
Fed's, which was, by the way, a year, year and a half ago, not anymore. The New York Fed Global Supply Chain Index is basically at the lowest level or, or at an average level over the last 25 years. So it has basically calmed down from a supply chain perspective. When you are at peak fear, then you hear a lot of these onshoring discussions, right? But then CEOs are also paid to look at economics and onshoring an entire supply chain back home is very expensive. Is it safer? Yeah, sure it is. But it is also damn more expensive to have all your employees in Germany rather than have them also scattered around Eastern Europe and Asia in particular. And if you listen to them in the earnings call, what I'm noticing is that rather than talking about onshoring to Europe, they're talking about a safer and more diversified offshoring. So they're talking about Malaysia, for example. That's yeah. what pops up. And, and that's like, again, it's Eastern Asia, Eastern Asia, but it's not China anymore, or it's not concentrated there. So it tends to be a bit spread around and safer. So I'm not sure that this transition to labor is going to be that fast and that strong to justify that equilibrium rates in Europe are 3%. The other factor, obviously, is 3% is risk-free rates. The private sector pays more. So you're talking about mortgage rates in Europe permanently over 4.5%. That's what you're saying. <laughs> wow. At least I need to scale down my risk appetite in case uh, being levered to the cities, if I'm allowed to say so, in my own apartment. Never mind. Um, I, want, I wanted to add one thing, um, because what you're saying is that we should stop talking about reshoring and start talking about friendshoring. Uh, yeah. It was um, basically a, a phrase uh, that Janet Yellen came up with, I think, in Davos. Um, and... I, I can tell you that um, from my discussions with Indian clients, they are sitting like this right now because it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the perfect scenario for them. Uh, they, they have this like in-between geopolitical stance where they can um, probably insource parts of what's um, uh, being outsourced to, to China, not least, uh, over years. Uh, and, and, and I think they, they really want to run for that opportunity. Uh, that, that's at least my, my um, impression. Yeah. So I agree. Um, I mean, we, we will not see car manufacturing taking job backs to Germany. I mean, no. it's, it's not what will happen here. I agree on that. Okay, so we talked about inflation, a bit about growth, ECB reaction function, short term and long term. I think what we are left to talk about is banks for a second yeah. and euro against the dollar, which is really interesting, I think, and we should spend some time on it. But first, the banks. Schnabel had a super interesting set of charts in there where if you were a client of the Macro Compass, you got this information a month ago. Let me beat my chest. So effectively, Europe does a stress test on the interest rate risk that banks run overall at a balance sheet level. And already there, it was visible that the median bank would take about a 5% drawdown in capital from a 200 basis point increase in interest rates. Now, 5% of capital. I mean, it's not nothing, but it doesn't wipe out the entire bank, not nearly. That would be 100% of capital, right? Mm -hmm. So the analysis showed that European banks are better regulated and they did their homework better on hedging overall. Schnabel today put out a chart where they were testing over 100 banks and she has a distribution of outcomes. And you can really see that the median bank loses about 5%, 6%. And even at the worst percentiles, you're talking maybe 10% of capital, 12%, 13% of capital. So 
she was trying to prove that European banks are really tightly regulated and they have done their homework on interest rate risk, also because they are stress tests. I mean, they can't avoid doing the homework. The central bank will stress them out. This has been one of the key reasons why I actually ended up buying European banks and Polish stocks as a proxy uh, for that as well, because these guys have been doing their homework. I mean, in Europe, we do a lot of things suboptimally, but on regulation, we tend to do even too much. In this case, it was actually a prudent and good approach, but European banks are... uh, holding on okay. Do you want to add something? I know something on um, real estate is top of your mind and, and this kind of exposures. So uh, one, one thing that strikes me is that um, this regulation um, obviously ensures that banks do not suffer too much from interest rate hikes directly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it ensures that banks are better protected against deposit flights. Mm-hmm. Um, what it doesn't really insure against is if the value of the collateral in the loan book drops in value of fast. Uh, you cannot really regulate that to an extent where <laughs> where banks are safe if the value of collateral drops. Um, and if you look at the loan books in Europe um, relative to commercial real estate, um, they're, they're actually on average bigger than the loan books as a percent of assets than the U.S. counterparts. It is, it is some, somewhat like uh, undercovered, <laughs> if, you, if you ask me. Um, and I guess the reason is that the, the sort of the price narrative around commercial real estate in Europe is, is, is not as bad as it is in, in the U.S. At least you have regions in the U.S. with like complete ghost towns from an office perspective right now, and you don't really see that to the same extent in Europe. Uh, but the issue here is if we get a spillover of material size to the value of collateral throughout this year, it has already begun, um, from interest rate hikes continuing until September um, with spillovers to mortgages and all that, then I would actually say that f- from a credit perspective, European banks are on average worse off than U.S. banks. And to me, it's still, it's still not something that gets a lot of airtime. I think you're totally right. So people have been overhyped about a systemic liquidity crisis. We have explained ad nauseam why that wasn't going to happen. And now people are pretty relaxed on real estate risks in Europe, particularly. I mean, US real estate risks have plenty of coverage. Mm. In Europe, not that much. I find it interesting that you say that if commercial real estate collateral value moves down, then obviously European banks will take a hit. Well, I had a look at um, an index developed by Green Street, is the company who does that, who tries to blend together offices, uh, commercial real estate in general. It's a blended index, basically, of the price of commercial real estate in Europe. It's 21% down in a year. Yeah, and it's getting worse. 21% down in a year, and it's back at late 2016 levels. So, as you said, is not only already started, I would say it's already happening <laughs> yeah. that some of this real estate, commercial real estate, doesn't get bid up. Financing rates are too high. The economics of offices are worse. But interestingly, it's already happening. It's there. The value of collateral is coming down. Yeah. European banks are exposed. And as you say, it's likely going to continue. And it doesn't get much coverage. And that credit exposure can't get backstopped by the ECB or the Fed or whoever. 
So two things to add to that. Um, I spent most of 22 working for a very, very large player in this space in Europe. Um, So I also have access to, I mean, pretty neat and decomposed data on the pricing of of various subsectors in European real estate and US real estate for that matter. And the interesting thing is that the price drop we've seen so far is a reflection of cap rates widening. Um, So it's not a reflection of the sort of operating income picture changing materially. Uh, The reason, in my opinion, is that when you enter into a lease for an office, for example, it's typically a pretty long-term lease, like say three, four years on average. So if there's a veining demand um, that suddenly happens due to an economic downturn, interest rates uh, on the op, et cetera, it will take a while before the net operating income suffers. Um, And with currently no bids, um, some of these funds will simply have to stick to their portfolio, right? Instead of uh, realizing the loss due to cap rates. Uh, And they will then take the hit from a net operating income perspective, probably say into 24 and 25. So I think it could actually turn into a pretty prolonged crisis on commercial real estate, both in Europe and in the US. Uh, And it is something that will slowly but surely feed through to bank balance sheets once that happens. Uh, So let's say... Let's see, Andreas, if we can have the good take, contrarian as well in this case. Uh, It's not like I want to be a contrarian, but it's highlighting risks that are not particularly on the radar of people, like European banks' exposure to commercial real estate, while making a level-headed analysis of this banking crisis that never happened in the end. So we got the first leg right. Let's see if we get this one too, but at least we want to flag that there are risks brewing pretty rapidly in the European commercial real estate sector and European banks are exposed. Yeah, to a larger extent than US banks. True that. Euro dollar. <laughs> well, the tempting answer to that right here is to go against the consensus and sell it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to ponder whether the timing is right now uh, to actually enter a... Um, an FX position, an active FX position with a relatively decent short-term carry, at least, if you're along the US dollar versus the euro. Yeah. Uh, so to me, we discussed this before recording. I mean, why take an active risk of being long the euro versus the dollar when it's not yielding positively? And it will likely not protect anything in your portfolio should this credit crunch come into fruition. Um, I don't really see the value of doing that because you bleed on a running basis if you're wrong timing-wise on the trade. Uh, And it doesn't hold any protection value uh, in case the rest of your portfolio blows up. Uh, So if you want that protection value, I think it makes much more sense to be long the Japanese yen. Um, I I perfectly admit that it is also a bleeding position uh, from a carry perspective. Uh, But... Let me phrase it like this. Um, We run a logistics model, uh, so like a probabilistic model on the future for euro dollar. Uh, And what I do is essentially that I look at six fundamental parameters, um, and we do that across every FX pair. But when you look at it from a euro dollar perspective, um, it's very interesting that we are currently at extremes in a lot of these fundamental variables. So take, for example, the spread between growth gauges in Europe relative to the Eurozone. The Eurozone growth expectations are a lot higher than 
US peers from a normalized perspective, which is again something that you see very, very seldomly. Um, so just from a statistical perspective, it tells me that the bar is pretty high now for the Eurozone to surprise relative yeah. to that spread expectation. Uh, and that's also the general feeling I get every time I travel clients uh, on roadshows that there is almost a hype around the euro being a, like a solid position in this kind of environment. Um, and I'm not so sure that that narrative will will hold once the credit crunch actually arrives at least. Yeah. So on euro dollar, I think short to medium term, there are three main determinants of FX price. One is the relative terms of trade. The other is interest rate differential. And the third is the sentiment around the macro cycle and markets in a relative basis. So if I take Euro dollar, then relative terms of trade have improved massively for the Eurozone since October last year. It was the 0.95 Steno only funds moment, basically. You remember that? <laughs> um, yeah. So there was that moment. And uh, since then, of course, things have improved markedly. I mean, natural gas prices have collapsed since then, electricity prices as well, and oil is lower and all of that stuff, right? So for the Eurozone, which imports energy, that's actually great news. Terms of, terms of trade have improved. That helps the Euro yeah. on the way up. Are we improving again on a net basis as we speak today? No. Nah, I think we're flatlining. We're no. just there. I mean, oil prices have even rallied a bit lately, but you know, we are just holding there basically. So that tailwind has exhausted, at least for the time being. Interest rate differentials, also something that worked in favor of the euro because on a relative basis, the ECB became much more vocal in the fourth quarter and in the first quarter this year, yes. talking about terminal rates have to be 4%, guys, wake up. There was a governing council meeting by Lagarde, an ECB meeting, where she literally said front-end pricing, which back then was 3% terminal rate, is wrong. You guys need to wake up. We're going to go higher than that. Yeah. Now, obviously, you increase domestic interest rates in Europe, and that helps as well on a relative basis, uh, the euro. Will that be continuing from now onwards? I mean, we are pricing next year. Sorry, in the second half of the year, the ECB not to cut rates while the Fed cuts rates. That's already priced in, and that only happened two times. Summer 2008, summer 2011. Both of them preceding not amazing times for global macro and the world. So, and that's already priced in as the base case scenario. So are you going to get the tailwind there from further repricing of that scenario? Also seems kind of exhausted, Andreas. And third, which I think it's what's still driving euro dollar higher as we speak, is the sentiment. It's people saying, as you say, your clients say, look, I mean, the euro is in a better situation. It's doing much better. Recessionary risks are lower. I treat it almost as a safe haven, right? And I want to squeeze in this risk premium left in euro and I want to go for it. Yeah. I also think stars are aligning to start considering actually that uh, it might rally for another month or so. Um, I mean, I, I'm long Poland, as we speak, yeah, right? yeah. which is a high beta <laughs> proxy of Euro. So who am I fooling? I mean, I'm riding the trend and it's working fine. Medium term, I'm not sure I really want to chase this much, much further, Andreas. Nope. So let me give another promise. I promise to open an open fans account, only fans account, sorry, if Euro dollar breached 0.95 on the downside. The point was that I was so sure that the sentiment was too bearish on Europe. I was yeah. perfectly right on that. Uh, the point being now that I 
I make the same promise. I will open an OnlyFans account if Eurodollar goes above 115 in this cycle. I simply cannot see it given the current sentiment uh, because everyone's on board the train. It doesn't mean that we can't go to 112 or 113, but we will never go across 115 given the current sentiment. I don't think so, at least. Never. It's never. A very expensive word in finance. (laughs) Mr. Steno is so sure. No, I mean, I I also agree on the overall take and... um, Let's see if this divergence, similar to summer 2008 and summer 2011, will last a lot longer. I don't but think so. Let's see whether we start a trend again this time. Uh, when the euro dollar traded at 0.9550, uh, I, I started receiving emails from people who tried to sell euro dollar to make it break 0.95. So let's see whether the same happens here if we get close to 115. As per disclaimer, I haven't put the short trade on yet, so I don't think the timing is there, but I'm, I'm yeah. monitoring it. Let me put it like that. Fair point. Okay, Andreas, I think it's time to remind people of two important things. Yeah. The first is that on, on May 7th, in only two weeks, if you still want to listen to Andreas and I blabber for 40 minutes about macro and trade ideas and what to buy, not to buy on the macro trading floor, it's not going to be on Blockworks YouTube channel anymore. By the way, would like to thank Blockworks. Great yes. work, guys. It's been awesome working with you. We're not transitioning to our own YouTube channel, which you need to subscribe here below or you won't be seeing the show. So if you want to hear us blabbering, go and subscribe there. And if you're a podcast listener, then do exactly what you did last Sunday. It will show up in the same apps. So no need to change anything. And what do we need to remind people of other than that? Well, um, you can find more about my uh, research offering at stenoresearch.com. Um, it's not only fans, <laughs> it's it's only macro. Um, and um, we promise you to stay on top of uh, all of these FX and fixed income trends, uh, which we track on a very uh, quant-based uh, approach. So um, go have a look at stenoresearch.com if you're interested. My stuff is on themacrocompass.com. It's macro in plain English and actionable investment strategy, themacrocompass.com. Said that, I think people have heard enough of us, Andreas, also for this Sunday. Shall we say goodbye? Let's do that. See you next Sunday. See you guys. Bye.